Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional the Mexican but Are we ready? Oh, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. On July 28, Pedro Castillo Terrones was inaugurated as Peru's 63rd constitutional president. Castillo's victory came after a highly contentious electoral process that was characterized by health and safety concerns due to the COVID-19 pandemic and false accusations of electoral fraud. Castillo ultimately won by 44,263 votes. Today, our guest is Dr. Jill Marie Burt, an associate professor of political science and Latin America studies at George Mason University. She's also a fellow at WALA, the Washington Office on Latin America, and has published extensively on political violence, state society relations, human rights, women and gender, and transnational justice in Latin America. Dr. Burt also recently published a book called Transitional Justice in the Aftermath of Civil Conflict Societies, Lessons from Peru, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And we will be adding the link to the publication in the podcast description. Jo Marie will share with us her insights on the recent election in Peru, what we can expect the first 100 days of the Castillo administration, and highlight some policy issues concerns for the U.S. government. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Marie. It's a pleasure to be here with you. The past few years have been extremely complicated in Peru. Five presidents in three years, several high-level political scandals that directly contributed to public distrust in government and institutions, and the highest number of deaths per capita due to COVID. Joe Marie, please set the scene for our audience Give us a quick recap of the recent presidential election. Why do you think Castillo was elected? And what does Castillo inherit? Uh, so, yeah, I think that Peru has experienced a tremendous amount of political and, and social turmoil, especially since COVID. But the political turmoil goes back to, I would say, at least 2016, when the opposition-controlled Congress, led by Keiko Fujimori's political party, who did not really uh, accept her defeat in the 2016 elections, uh, was determined to remove the president almost at all costs. And really, instead of acting like, you know, an opposition party, acted like a demolition party. And Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who was elected in 2016, was removed. Uh, he resigned, actually, but they, they were forcing to remove him. He resigned over a, a series of uh, scandals. And then the new the president who took over from him, Vizcarra, was also constantly being, his ministers were being blocked, his cabinets were being rejected. Uh, and eventually, the, the Constitution of Peru allows for the president to dismiss Congress, dissolve Congress, and convene new elections if 
the Congress censures two cabinets. And so there were snap elections held, but the confrontation between the executive and the legislator continued. Viscara was removed in November of last year. A new pre- the president of Congress was elected, became president. He was he stepped down after five days after massive street protests. And then another another president was named. So, so there's just turmoil, deadlock, and stalemate between the executive and the legislative branch, largely because, you know, this one party, Fuerza Popular, Keiko Fujimori's party, was unwilling to, you know, really unwilling to play democratic politics, leading to all these stalemates and this political instability. So it's in this context, and added to that is the just disaster that COVID has been for Peru, that these elections uh, take place in April. The first round elections take place in April 2021, and then the second round vote June 6th, 2021. And you had an incredibly fragmented field. At one point, there were 20 presidential candidates running, and you ended up getting this very polarizing dynamic. And what you ended up having is the, the one of the most extreme right-wing candidates won uh, the, second, the second highest uh, vote, and one of the most, probably the most radical left-wing candidate won the top vote and then faced off each other in the second round of votes. So, you know, on top of all this sort of very recent instability, the, the, the devastation of COVID, as you mentioned, Peru, has the highest fatality rate in the world, which is something that I'd be interested in talking with you about because it's worth asking the question why Peru was so hard hit by COVID. And the polarization that you saw in the first round election fueled, you know, in part by the, the fragmented nature of the political field and by the electoral rules of the game, you saw that polarization on full display during the sort of two months between the first and the second round vote. And then, of course, even after, because Keiko Fujimori refused to accept that she lost. And so you had the right backed by, in large part, the, the, the mainstream media, which... And this is another interesting thing about one economic group controls 80% of the media outlets. So that that entire sort of media established sort of lined up behind Keiko Fujimori, who became the candidate of the status quo of the establishment of quote unquote economic stability and Castillo very much the, the candidate of change. And so the choices were rather stark, right? And so that fueled the polarization. And then once the electoral counting was finalized, as you mentioned, Castillo won by a very slim margin, 44,000 votes. Although this is not unprecedented, right? I think that's also, it's important to note that Keiko Fujimori lost in 2016 to Pedro Pablo Kuczynski by 41,000 votes. So this is not an unusual thing for Peru. Part of it is the dynamic of the second round vote, I think. But Keiko Fujimori's unwillingness to accept her defeat and she, she kind of, it's interesting, she kind of said in the context of a series of interviews with the media during the campaign, my mistake in 2016 was that I did not demand a recount. Mm-hmm. And here she sort of took, and this parallel has been drawn in, you know, the, the mainstream U.S. press, the international press, taking a, book, a page out of the book of Donald Trump, you know, challenging the election results, saying that they were there was fraud, when in fact there was none. And so the elections authorities were very careful to evaluate the claims of fraud, and one by one, those were discounted as, you know, lacking any merit. Electoral authorities in Peru are some of the best in the region, to be frank. Um, and I think that merits... 
being underscore. Joe Marie, may I please ask you to introduce our DC audience to to this 51-year-old rural school teacher and union leader who almost a month ago became the president of Peru. What is his background? Where did he come from? What should we know about him? Yeah, that's a really important question. I mean, you know, three or four weeks before the first round vote, few people had ever really heard of Pedro Castillo, even in Lima. The one foray he had into national politics was in 2017, when he led a teacher strike against the, the government of Kuczynski. But then he sort of faded back into the background. He ran apparently a few times in the past for local office and had never been successful, so he'd never been elected to public office. And so for someone like him to go from being, you know, a rural school teacher, a leader of the teachers' trade union movement, to being president is quite a jump. He's from the northern part of Peru, Cajamarca, a small town called Chota. Not only is he a rural school teacher and a trade unionist, but he's also a member of the Ronderos. The Rondas Campesinas are a movement that emerged in Peru in the 70s in the context of, you know, a, a largely absent national level state in rural areas. And it's very much grew up in Cajamarca, where Castillo is from. And it's sort of, a, you know, we have here in the U.S. neighborhood defense patrols. It's sort of like that. There's a big problem of cattle rustling and other kinds of um, local criminal activity that the Rondas emerged in response to and really became recognized nationally. It's a very Peruvian phenomenon, but they become recognized nationally as a very sort of important local movement and lo local authorities. And they're very different from the rondas that emerged in southern Peru in the context of the war against the Shining Path. It's a very distinct phenomenon. I think that's important. You know, Castillo is someone who captured the imagination, I think, of Peruvians in between, the, especially the first and the second round vote, because of his very humble background, because he looks like them, he talks like them, he promises to bring about changes to benefit average Peruvians. Um, there's long been a longing in Peru for that kind of change, right? Peru is a very unequal society. The neoliberalism that has been put in place in Peru 30 years ago under the Fujimori government has brought, you know, very high levels of economic growth and spectacular wealth for some people, but not a lot of benefit for, you know, the vast majority of the population. Um, so there is this sort of hunger for change that I think he tapped into in a very significant way. But it's also important to look at sort of the politics of who he is. He, you know, he, he's not actually a member of the political party Peru Libre that brought him to power. He's an invitado, an invited member. And the president of Peru Libre, Vladimir Serrón, he, he would have run for president had he been able to. But he was sentenced for corruption, and by the rules of Peru, he therefore cannot hold public office as long as he's, he's serving out a suspended sentence for corruption. What can you tell us about Castillo's inner circle, his, in air quotes, political party? I guess that you already made clear to us that he's an invitado uh, and not a militante. Um, his cabinet, how can we anticipate that, you know, his background and his inner circle will shape Peru and where Peru is going in the next few months. My understanding is that Castillo taps into three distinct, although in some moments interrelated groups. One is uh, his 
trusted advisors, people who he's been colleagues or friends with, primarily in the teachers union, and his members of his family for years, so people he trusts sort of unconditionally. Then people connected to Peru Libre, the party that brought him to power. And, you know, Cerrón looms large there. Uh, he is the leader of Peru Libre, and he has asserted publicly uh, on numerous occasions his leadership and authority. And then the allied parties that Castillo developed alliances with in the interim between the first and second round elections, the more moderate uh, leftist and centrist parties such as Nuevo Peru, Juntos por el Peru, and and some of the there are member uh, members of the cabinet have been drawn from each of these three circles. You know, and these are not circles, uh, groups of people that necessarily agree with each other on everything. So you're naturally going to see a lot of conflict, discrepancies, tensions emerge over policy, quotas of power, and so forth. And we've already, I mean, we saw that from the get-go. He was sworn in on July 28th, and the cabinet ministers are traditionally sworn in also on the 28th. And his party announced that prime minister would be sworn in the next day. No one knew who it was going to be which is also unusual, and that the rest of the cabinet would be sworn in on on the 30th. Well, the prime minister was in fact sworn in on the 29th in a a grand ceremony in Ayacucho, very symbolic. And it's uh, an individual who's very close to, he's a member of Peru Libre, very close to Cerrón. His name is Guido Bellido, and he's proven to be quite controversial. Then later on that evening, there was a ceremony to swear in the remaining members of the cabinet and two of the members who are from the more moderate sectors, not from Peru Libre, Pedro Franque, the Minister of Economy, and Aníbal Torres, who would become eventually the Minister of Justice, they walked out of the ceremony because they were so upset at Bellido's nomination. Now, Bellido's someone, the law has been made that he's accused of apology of terror for terrorism, which you know, there's a mistaken assumption that that means he therefore must be connected to Shining Path. The problem is, is that in post-conflict Peru, there was a law passed that said anyone who says anything positive about the Shining Path can be prosecuted for the crime of, of apology of terrorism. And that's what he did. He said something positive about a young woman who was a member of the Shining Path who was killed in an, in an armed confrontation in the early 80s. And that led to this investigation into him. So that does not, it's not the same thing as him being a member of the Shining Path, which is what some of the media has tried to make it out to be. But he also has, you know, been questioned because of extremely homophobic remarks that he's made publicly on his social media feed and and misogynistic remarks as well. And sort of the the condition, I think, for Franque and, and Torres to accept their nominations into the cabinet were that Bellido state publicly that this would be a cabinet that respected all human rights and that was working towards inclusivity and diversity and that he sort of, you know, stepped away from those earlier statements. So that just at the outset, you see that there was tension and conflict over certain orientations that different members of the cabinet have or have expressed in the past. So... It's, uh, you know, it's very heterogeneous. And I mean, I think you also, the other thing I think that you have to talk about in looking at this is the improvisation that's going on. I'm pretty certain that Pedro Castillo did not expect to win the presidency of Peru. And in this sense, it reminds me quite a bit 
of the election in 1990 of Alberto Fujimori. Alberto Fujimori, like Castillo, emerged virtually out of nowhere. He was unknown politically to most Peruvians, and he started, you know, increasing in the polls just weeks before the election. He made it into the, into the second round vote, and he ultimately won, but also he was someone who did not have really have a party. He did not have a clear policies. He did not have a cabinet set out, so there was a lot of improvisation, and he was captured quite easily was captured by the economic elite and he was captured by the military. And that's who sort of defined his politics. Here, it's, you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out where this government is heading. And part of it is we don't know because there's not a lot of transparency. And part of it is we don't know because I'm not sure that they fully know. I mean, there are things that Peru Libre there's clear orientations that Peru Libre has. And last night there was an interview that, you know, Sunday evening news programs are, you know, very important in Peru. And there was an interview last night with Vladimir Serrón, the president of Peru Libre, who outlined some very clear orientations for this government. But Serrón is not the president. To what degree does Serrón speak for Castillo? What do, does Castillo agree with Serrón? Do they dis... And, and these are things that are being hotly discussed and interpreted. And I don't think we fully know. And it's, of course, it's very early. Castillo's only been president for two weeks. So it is, you know, it's early to fully know at this point, I think. Well, it is part of the learning process. Let's talk about the executive legislative relations in Peru, please, and how these will impact um, democratic governance in the country. How is the Peruvian Congress structured? Help us understand that dynamic between the two branches of government and what can we expect in the next few months? So I think one thing that's very important to lay out is that the Peruvian Congress is a unicameral Congress, and that is the result of the 1993 constitution that was put in place by Alberto Fujimori and a constituent assembly that he, he convened after having dissolved the popularly elected Congress in a what, what Peruvians refer to as an autogolpe or a self-coup. He shut down Congress. He suspended the 1979 constitution, which had been the result of a popularly convened constituent assembly, was very broad-based and so forth, with the backing of the armed forces. And so this constitution created a unicameral Congress, which obviously is much easier for an autocrat like Fujimori to control. And so literally that the Congress from 93 until the end of his administration in 2000 was literally a rubber stamp for anything Fujimori wanted done was essentially rubber stamped by the Congress. When Peru transitioned in 2000, Fujimori fled the country after very controversial third re-election, which uh, was declared by the United States government and by the OAS as the result of a fraudulent electoral process, which would be interesting to come back to given the claims of fraud in this most recent election. And uh, literally a few months later, he fled the country after uh, revelations of corruption, you know, grand corruption in his government. There was a transition and there was some discussion of whether Peru should convene a new constituent assembly and, you know, write a new constitution, but that was rapidly discarded. I think there were many politicians and elites eager to maintain sort of the neoliberal orientation of this constitution and try to address the rest through some reform. So there have been some reforms to this constitution, but it has remained a unicameral Congress. So it sets up a very direct confrontation between the president and the Congress if the president does not have a majority in Congress. 
So let's talk about that. The Peruvian Congress has in the past removed presidents from office using something called incapacidad moral. Maybe we translate as moral incapacity. Uh, please help us understand what this is and if this is a likely scenario for Castillo in the near future. Again, this is also part of the 1993 Constitution. It's written into the Constitution. This unicameral congressional body, which consists of, I think it used to consist of 120, now it's 130 legislatures, with uh, only 87 votes, can invoke the moral incapacity clause to remove a president. And the problem is, is the moral incapacity clause is extremely vague. And so as we saw... Uh, last year, it was invoked to remove President Vizcarra on the basis of an accusation of corruption that had not even been investigated yet. And so it's highly arbitrary. And so there have been calls to alter, if, if there's not going to be a rewrite of the Constitution, at least that clause should be removed to make it more difficult for an impeachment to take place. It's essentially an impeachment. It's impeachment and removal all at once. It's not like in the U.S. where you can impeach and then the president can stay in office. It's, it's, a, it's a removal clause. So it, it generates instability when the executive does not control the Congress, which has been the case for the last five years. Kuczynski was a minority president. Vizcarra had actually no party and no members of Congress. And so he went, the other, the other element that's in the Constitution that creates or contributes to this instability is that the president, I think, can dissolve Congress if the Congress has voted twice to censure the cabinet. And so these are like the nuclear options. They're thought of, I think, they, they were thought of historically as the nuclear options, but in the context of minority governments, it becomes almost the default option. And that's what happened in 2016. Before 2016, I mean, I don't recall this dynamic being so prevalent. But in 2016, I think it's important to keep in mind that Keiko Fujimori's party had a super majority in Congress. Also, one of the legacies of the rules handed down during the Fujimori era, though they only had something like 53% of the vote, they ended up getting something like 70% of the, I'm not sure I'm remembering the numbers exactly, but the number of seats in Congress they had was far superior to the actual percentage of votes that they earned in the 2016 elections. And so Keiko Fujimori, from the very get-go, was, you know, trying to push that nuclear option, trying to remove Kuczynski. Once Kuczynski was removed, trying to remove Vizcarra, and Vizcarra decided that he also had his own nuclear option to use, and he used it. He dissolved the Congress in 2019, and NAP elections were held in 2020, only it didn't really have better results. I mean, this Congress was as confrontational, even though there were different actors now involved, as confrontational with the executive as before. I think this dynamic has now become part of the, I'm not sure how to describe it, it's like to-go option now. What can we expect during the first 100 days of the Castillo administration? Um, please tell us, Joe Marie, um, about his proposed policy agenda. What are some of the priorities? How do you see them playing out? So... I think one of the most important priorities of the government is, as stated by Castillo and by Serrón, is a constituent assembly that would write a new constitution. The question over how to get there, right, there's controversy over that. Castillo promised in his inaugural address that he would pursue the creation of an a constituent assembly 
using legal means. So he would not try to because the constitution currently does not allow for the creation of a new constitution. So he has to have the, a modification of the constitution that would then allow for the convening of a constituent assembly. Other members of Peru Libre seem to be more willing to sort of sidestep those processes to you know go right to a constituent assembly and the writing of a new constitution. But there is a desire to write a new constitution both to change some of these political dynamics, but also to change sort of the economic orientation of the country, right? The, the current constitution locks in a lot of the free market neoliberal policies installed under the Fujimori regime. And the, this is another element, I think, of the Castillo government, which is that it is definitively an anti-neoliberal government, which is not the same to say that it's anti-free market. And I do think there's some controversy here. Media in Peru kind of portrays the Castillo government as, you know, a communist government or trying to impose communism or socialism and so forth. And I think that that they've sent a number of signals suggesting that what they are interested in is expanding state regulation over markets, over certain processes, especially over mining and other concessions uh, over natural resources, which of course proves a, you know, a mining is one of its main sources of income. It's also been a very conflictual sector because of oftentimes the failure of uh, foreign corporations to consult local communities, uh, to fail to address environmental impacts and so forth. But increasing state regulations state control is definitely part of their agenda. But at the same time, recognizing the pushback, they named a moderate uh, leftist as Minister of Economy, Pedro Franchi, who's expressed, you know, respect for free markets. Uh, this is not going to be nationalization. This is not going to be a state takeover of the economy. And also in the n- naming of Julio Velarde, the head of the, the National Reserve, to remain on in that position. And he recently accepted. So those, I think, are meant to express the idea that, yeah, we're going to try to you know strengthen the real estate, increase some regulations, but we are not going to start nationalizing, you know, or so there. But, you know, again, a lot remains to be seen in terms of how these things are played out. And I think the other third big thing that Castillo has promised, and again, it remains to be seen how he's going to deliver, and we don't really have any clarity, is policies that engender a better life for most Peruvians. So that means better investment in education, in public health, which, you know, the COVID pandemic revealed the disaster that is public health in Peru poverty alleviation programs, joblessness. I mean, 75% of Peruvians labor in the informal sector. So these are things that Castillo has promised to try to address, but we're still not clear on the how. I would say a fourth perhaps is, is, is also more sort of inclusion and addressing racism. Right. We, we saw a very virulent racism in Peru in the context of the election campaign directed against Castillo, directed against members of his party and and post his inauguration against members of his cabinet, many of whom are from the Andes. And Peru is a very divided country based on class, based on ethnicity or race and uh, on region. So we're seeing this play out. And he made a very, you know, he's talked about recognizing Peru as a plurinational country um, making sure that all services are available in Quechua and other indigenous languages, ending racial discrimination, which is 
it's quite present in Peru. Just this anecdote the other day, and I think helps illustrate this, there was a meeting between Pedro Castillo, the president, and the president of Congress, uh, Congresswoman Alba, who is from the Popular Action Party, a, a rightist party, who is, you know, a Limeña woman from the upper upper classes. And they met and they, they touched elbows. And then I think Castillo was going to try to engage her in conversation. And she made a gesture with her hand, sort of pushing him aside, and she turned her face away from him. And there has been this intense debate in social media and you know the mainstream media over how to interpret that gesture was it simply we're in the context of covid she didn't want to get too close which could perhaps be understandable but given the history of racism in Peru and given the racism that has been displayed in the context of these elections against Castillo and his allies it was perceived by many people as just the embodiment of the classism and the racism of, you know, the Lima-based elites vis-a-vis people of Andean rural descent. So, I mean, it's very charged. It's not just a difference over economic models or economic policies. There's the deeper historical cleavages and conflicts that are coming to the surface and it's just it's very charged <laughs> i'll certainly leave it at that for now <laughs> um here's my last question if you had the opportunity to put together some bullets for decision makers in washington what would those bullets contain yeah that's a great question i mean I think the United States policy towards Latin America, I mean, you know, we all know that the U.S. often forgets about Latin America, even though there's also a long history of U.S. meddling and intervention in Latin America, sort of one of these paradoxes. But we know that the Biden administration has elevated the combating of corruption and the strengthening of rule of law is key to addressing some of the ills in the region, in addition to obviously longer term social and economic development. So I think that supporting countries like Peru, where there has been a very vigorous anti-corruption effort, but supporting those efforts would be excellent. Supporting longer term development would also be excellent, but without the dogma of sort of the neoliberal model that we've, we've seen in recent years. I think that the U.S. would be well advised to try to develop bridges with this administration and work with them to address Peru's immediate both social and economic concerns as well as some of its serious political issues without letting, you know, a lot of the ideology get in the way. You know, I was at a I was at a, a work related dinner party last night, and someone asked me, "Is President Castillo part of Shiny Path?" And I was just like, "What? N- no, <laughs> no." And this was from you know a fellow faculty member who is a Latin Americanist, and I just thought to myself, it reveals how the media, the Peruvian media, has really peddled this narrative. We're trying to connect Castillo to communism to shiny path. Well, it also goes back to what you pointed out earlier in the podcast, which is 80% of the media is owned by a particular um, economic group. And unfortunately, a lot of that gets picked up in the international media without any real critical review. And so that's what gets put out there in, you know, English speaking media. And so, you know, it's my hope that the U.S. administration 
really sits down and hears what this new government is aiming to do um, and helps. It needs help. Peru needs help. We've mentioned the pandemic has hit Peru exceptionally hard. There was an incredible story in Reuters several weeks back where the reporter went to Chota, which is where President Castillo is from. And he discovered that the nearest hospital was three hours from Chota. And that that hospital only had three ICU beds. So that, I just think that little anecdote explains, right, why someone from rural Peru promising to address some of these terrible inequities captured the imagination of so many people. And, you know, remember Castillo, he he may have won nationally by a razor thin margin, but in the Andes, he won by 80 90 and even 95 percent. It's really stunning how popular he is in the Andes. I mean, we'll see how long that lasts, right? It depends on how effectively he is in delivering on some of his core promises. But he he really captured the imagination of poor, rural, indigenous Peruvians who have lived excluded and marginalized, not just for decades, but, but for centuries. Joe Marie, is there anything that we did not cover that you would like to highlight super quickly? I think it is worth talking briefly about the fraud narrative, because I, though the elections authorities, you know, were successful in evaluating and, you know, certifying the results of the elections, dismissing charges of fraud, those narratives of fraud are persisting in Peru. The right and much of the right-wing media continues to peddle this narrative that there was fraud, that the elections were stolen from Keiko Fujimori. Keiko herself, when she, she didn't really concede, she accept, She said she was accepting the results, but viewed the presidency of Pedro Castillo as not legitimate because Peru Libre stole the elections from her. So I think it's important to understand that we have in the Peruvian Congress several right-wing parties who by default reject the legitimacy of the current government and will persist, I think, in their efforts to remove President Castillo or at least make his job very difficult. And so I think what we're likely to see is the same kind of obstructionism that we saw in the 2016 to 2021 legislature. And that bodes very poorly for political stability and for the ability of the government to govern, to address some of these deep social and economic problems that Peru faces. We've already seen calls on the part of some right-wing legislators for Pedro Castillo to be removed, to be impeached from office. And some of Peru Libre's members of Congress have said, well, if you censure two of our cabinets, we're going to just dis- dissolve the Congress. So they're already both sides. Not, not Castillo hasn't said that, but some of the members of Congress of his party have said that. So you know, within you know a, a week of him taking over as president, both sides are already reaching for those nuclear options. There seems to be no room for working together in the context of this pandemic to address some of the deep social and economic and political ills of the country. And that bodes very poorly for Peru. We've learned a lot today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in 35 West. We appreciate you taking time to speak with us today. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me, Margarita. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.